think about falls, they are such a complex and multifaceted problem, which really makes preventing them a really great fit for our occupational therapy skill set. So today on the podcast, we are going to begin by looking at an article that explores the state of the science on preventing falls in hospitalized patients. The authors are going to walk us through the scope of this big, big problem and the science or lack thereof around different interventions that are typically used to prevent falls. And while many of these interventions are going to sound simple, like gripper socks and alarms, the article reminds us that there really is no one silver bullet to prevent falls, but there are definitely interventions that have stronger support in the evidence than others. After we look at this research, we are excited to welcome to the podcast Pooja Patel, OTD, OTRL, CDP, CFPS. Pooja is a fall prevention specialist and served as the fall champion at her hospital and just has this wealth of knowledge and experience about being involved in fall prevention programs and what you can do to up your game either as an individual therapist or part of a quality team at your facility. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this topic of OT and falls prevention, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. It is $89 to join us in there. And after listening, you can go in and take a test and earn a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this could count as continuing education for some of you, I wanted to share our two learning objectives for our time today. Our first is that you will be able to identify acute care fall prevention strategies that are lacking in evidence. Our second is that you will be able to recognize acute care fall prevention strategies that have the most support and research behind them. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring Pooja on to discuss how this research can play out in your practice. The article that we are looking at today is called Preventing Falls in Hospitalized Patients. It was published in the journal Clinics in Geriatric Medicine in the year 2019. And the article begins with this introduction into falls in acute care. The authors share that patient falls are the most common adverse event that is reported in hospitals. The number of falls in hospitals each year is actually decreasing overall, but the statistics continue to be staggering. Each year in the United States, roughly 700,000 to 1 million falls occur in our hospitals. And these Falls result in about 250,000 injuries and up to 11,000 deaths. It is estimated that approximately 2% of patients fall during their hospital stay. So who pays for these falls? 
In addition to the significant physical and emotional burden of falls, they take an economic toll on both patients and facilities. In 2008, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services stopped reimbursing for fall-related injuries as they deemed them to be preventable. The annual cost of these falls is estimated to be around $30 billion. So what is being done? Given the massive cost, hospitals are, of course, looking for a silver bullet to this problem. This has resulted in a rollout of fall prevention programs that typically entail first identifying patients at high risk of falling and second using clinical judgment to decide which strategies should be used accordingly to prevent falls. But unfortunately, there is just considerable variation to these programs as clinical judgment is typically used in place of decisive research on what actions to take. So while there is just this growing body of research on fall prevention, especially in community-dwelling elderly, these findings do not necessarily translate to the unique circumstances of hospitals, which leads us to this paper. Given the information I just shared on the numbers and the costs, the authors say it is imperative to examine fall prevention strategies specific to the hospital setting. They break their exploration into three main categories. One, they look at the study designs being used. Two, they look at the evidence behind individual fall prevention interventions. And three, they look at the evidence behind multifactorial fall prevention interventions. So turning to the evidence behind individual fall prevention strategies, they look at the evidence behind seven different individual fall prevention strategies. These are all going to sound really familiar to you. So I'm just going to walk through each of the seven and kind of pull out their main takeaways. The first is fall risk identification. They share there is a lack of evidence supporting the use of fall prediction tools. This led the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence to recommend against the use of fall prediction tools. Instead, they advised that all inpatients older than 65 should be considered at high risk for falls. This is also backed up by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that also asserts that it is more important to identify and address patient-specific risk factors for fall rather than spending time calculating fall risk numbers. And to be clear, when they're talking about fall prediction tools, these are those calculations of fall risk scores that are based on known risk factors, and then they rate how high of a risk are. So so basically, again, they're saying that instead of taking the time to do this, just everyone over 65 should be considered a high risk for falls. Fall risk assessments, which are the checklists that help you identify risk factors, may still be of use to help you identify the specific risk factors that a patient would fall under so you can address those. Second is alarms. There is now strong evidence that alarms are ineffective in fall prevention. Additionally, alarms cause a host of their own problems, including contributing to confusion and agitation for cognitively impaired patients, restricting mobility and independence, and causing alarm fatigue for staff. The authors do note that just because alarms are ineffective in their current form, which is basically sounding loudly when people get out of bed or out of a chair, that does not mean we should discount future technology developments. For example, wearable alarm systems could prove more effective than the current models being used on beds and chairs. The third strategy they look at is the use of sitters. Scissors provide one-on-one surveillance for patients, and they also can help provide therapeutic care. 
There are only small non-randomized studies that support the use of sitters, and they represent a considerable expense that is often not reimbursable by third-party payers, so many hospitals do discourage their use. Four is intentional rounding. Intentional rounding is this proactive approach to meeting patient needs involving regular bedside checks that are performed every one to two hours. The quality of evidence for this is weak, and of note, the studies performed have mostly been quality improvement studies. Rounding also carries its own downsides, potentially including the perception of a top-down approach restricting staff autonomy, as well as increased workloads, competing priorities, poor documentation, and lack of staff buy-in. Fifth is patient education. They say there is some evidence that patient education is effective in reducing falls for cognitively intact patients. And side note, in our supplementary reading, I'm going to share an even more recent article that just shares how this evidence for patient and staff education has really grown over the time and really supports the idea that this is your most effective approach for addressing falls. The article does note that patient education may not be suitable for patients with cognitive impairment, which is a common risk factor for inpatient falls. Six is environmental modifications. The physical environment can definitely be a contributor to falls. The authors share one study that looked specifically at falls that resulted in death or permanent loss of function, and 39% of these falls identified the physical environment as part of the root cause. There was one randomized controlled trial that found fewer falls occur on vinyl floors as opposed to carpet. And they share another study that found no evidence that a very low bed reduced the risk of falls. Seven is physical restraints. And unfortunately, there just remains this perception, both on the part of health professionals and of patients, that restraints reduce the risk of falls. In many facilities, they are still considered a viable last resort for preventing falls. But data from multiple studies suggests that restraints may not prevent, but instead increase the risk of falling. Restraints can also cause agitation and delirium, pressure ulcers, deconditioning, strangulation, and death. And I apologize. I think I said there were seven interventions, but there's one more, which is non-slip gripper socks. There is a small body of research on non-slip socks. And this body of research just has not provided evidence of their efficacy as a fall prevention strategy. The authors say that given the lack of evidence, a patient's own footwear remains the safest option for fall prevention. Okay, those were all the individual strategies. We're going to look at this last shorter section on multifactorial interventions. The authors say that given the many factors contributing to falls, it makes sense that multi-component approaches would be the most effective. And there have been a few important readings exploring this option. The results here are a little mixed. It's not as strong as that patient education strategy was. They mentioned something called the six-pack program, which was the largest research fall prevention program to date. But despite the successful rollout of it, there was not a reduction in falls with this program. That being said, a recent Cochrane review did conclude that multifactorial interventions may reduce the rate of falls, although subgroup analysis suggests that this may apply mostly to a subacute setting. So there's these mixed results and really the verdict is still out for their efficacy in the acute care setting. So to summarize all of this, the authors share that although fewer falls have been reported over time, hospital falls remain a significant safety problem. There remains this urgent and ongoing need for well-designed research studies of fall prevention. 
There is a lot to unpack in this article and just a lot to discuss about what we do with this information. And I'm so thankful to be joined today by Pooja Patel. Pooja is the founder and primary consultant of her brand new private practice, which is called Caregiver Consulting and Healthy Solutions, where she provides family and caregiver education related to senior care. She has been an acute care occupational therapist for over five years, primarily serving the geriatric population with attention to dementia care, fall prevention, and chronic disease management. Pooja is also currently an adjunct assistant professor of occupational therapy at Delaware State University, teaching adult and geriatric mental health and psychosocial practice. Dr. Patel formerly served as the national president of Pi Theta Epsilon from 2017 to 2022. Pooja also serves as a member of the AOTF Board of Trustees. So without further ado, I will welcome Pooja to this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Pooja. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. This is actually a requested topic. People ask that we covered this because it pertains to so many practice areas. It ends up being a big part of basically anyone who look, works with adults. And I was so happy to see this research because the direction is there's more clarity than I was expecting about what's supported in research and what isn't. So I'm really excited to talk about that today. But before we get there, I wanted to start and learn a little bit about you and your origin story and just start with how you first found OT. Sure. It's funny because I used to actually dread this question a few years ago because <laughs> oh. I felt like, well, I felt like I entered into OT for a completely different reason than what I do now. And it was always very difficult to answer the question. Mm. And now I reflect on it and it's like, it's almost like, oh my God, what a great journey. And mm. so I actually found out about OT when I was in high school and I worked in an early childhood development course and mm. I fell in love with these children who were, you know, having difficulties and trying to help them through some of those difficulties. So I entered OT wanting to work in pediatrics. And then, you know, we went through OT school, <laughs> did some field work, some labs, and I decided that pediatrics was not for me. <laughs> and I went the opposite route and went to the opposite end of the spectrum to geriatrics and just absolutely fell in love. So I do love that story because it just shows like the variety in what we can do within our field. And it's just so wonderful to see that, you know, I may have stumbled upon it for a certain reason, but then I ended up sticking to it for a completely different reason. Mm. Yo, I love that story. And I think we need to tell that story and hear that story more because it's so common. And it's interesting for me because I get to talk to people who are like practicing at the top of their game, but hardly anyone started OT with the picture of where they are now. Like, and that's one of the beautiful parts is it can take you so many places and there's just a trial and error process to finding out the right fit for you too. And that's just true in so many things. And it's interesting to hear that in people's careers. So, so you found OT, you found adult rehab. Tell me a little bit how you found fall prevention. So fall prevention sort of landed in my lap and I sort of embraced it. At the hospital that I was working at, we had an inpatient fall prevention team and there was a physical therapist at that table. And one of my former managers who was on that committee 
came up to me and said, Hey, we really need an OT at this table. And that was wonderful because, you know, the manager was a PT and she was the one at the table and she's like, I need an OT at the table. Hmm. And so that was kind of how it fell in my lap. And I said, sure, I would love to do that. And so that was sort of what started my role working to address fall prevention in the hospital from an OT perspective. And that led to then basically being the central force in assisting with fall prevention related to toileting, bathroom needs, cognition, things that we as OTs look at holistically mm-hmm. and assess and intervene on. And so that's that's kind of how that passion started. I have two follow-up questions from that. Awesome both and then let you take them both at the same time. But what do you think made that PT look to you like individually? Were you the most senior OT or what did she see in you? And two, what gaps do you think that she saw that were being missed that she thought an OT could address? So the first part, I think the reason why I was approached is partly because I was one of the more senior therapists in the department, but also because I have always been very involved nationally with AOTA and with just keeping up with best practice and the latest trends. And I was actually one of the very few OTs in the department who had worked at other hospitals prior to this current hospital. And so I think there was value in trying to learn and understand different perspectives of how, you know, maybe there was something that worked at a different hospital that we hadn't tried here yet, Mm -hmm. or maybe there was something that they wanted to try, but wanted to see if we had already tried it and hadn't worked elsewhere, right? So kind of trying to gauge some of that experience into figuring out what we could do next. And then as far as why I think she probably felt or identified that OT could potentially help with this is that majority, almost more than 50% of falls in the hospital are related to toileting. And so Hmm. I think the PT was like, hey, you know, you know, a great discipline that assesses this every single day in the hospital and provides safety recommendations around toileting is occupational therapy. And so maybe that would be a great perspective to have at the table to kind of figure out what can we be doing differently to help in this specific area that's causing over 50% of our falls. Right. Hmm. And so I think that was those two kind of put together came to me. Hmm. As I was reading, I didn't see that part on toileting, but that makes so much intuitive sense that that is connected to those falls, whereas there's that urgency, maybe first time someone's getting out of bed. It's something that you want to do privately, maybe where you don't want to call for help. You just want to sneak there and get there. So that makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I'm happy that they included you on the team. And I think the research that we're looking at speaks so much to why OT is such an important voice in those conversations. So, so you're you're the is it the fall immobility champion? Was that your title? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you're a fall immobility champion. What does that look like at your hospital? So at our hospital, nursing actually rolled out a fall, the fall immobility champion program, and it designated about 
two to three nurses on every unit in the hospital to be the fall and mobility champion. And what that entailed for them was, you know, auditing for like environmental barriers or safety hazards, making sure they had safe mobility plans in place, making sure that the fall risk assessments were being completed and screenings were being completed and educating their fellow nursing colleagues on best practice to help decrease fall risk. Along the way, they were like, okay, who's in charge of mobility in our hospital? And that was where OT and PT came in. And so they wanted to add an OT and a PT fall mobility role as well. So that was where, because I was already on the inpatient falls team, I automatically kind of slipped into (laughs) or slided into that OT fall and mobility champion role. And then we had a, I had a PT counterpart as well. And so we worked fairly hand in hand to kind of establish best practice, educate the nurses on various safe mobility techniques, positioning with when assisting with mobility out of bed to the bathroom and the chair, walking down the hallway how to manage lines while we're doing it. Cause you know, we Mm -hmm. go in and we'll set up the 20 million lines and have them walking and they don't necessarily have that training or have that exposure to then know where to stand. Right. You'll often find the IV pull in between someone and the patient. And we're like, okay, let's move the IV pull around. How do we do this? And so, Mm -hmm. and then uh, positioning for if someone is going down, how can you help them down as safely as possible without injuring yourself or the patient. And so we've, that is how the role kind of transpired and became of us annually providing education with physical demonstration and practice on how to safely mobilize patients and help prevent them from injuring themselves if they are falling. Another big part was use of safe equipment, safe patient handling equipment. Mm-hmm. And so the different lifts, when it, which lift to use when, how do you decide what equipment to use? How do you know if they need a cane or a walker? Oftentimes we're going in and establishing that, but before we get in there, how can they help make sure that the patient has what they need to safely get up and move around? And so that's sort of what that role has looked like over the years of more so of that education from our occupational therapy and physical therapy lenses. And then as far as like reviewing falls and that part too, sometimes we'll get a question and say, hey, you know, OT recommended this and then this is what happened and it led to a fall. So like, what can we do about that? And we try to analyze, okay, what was the recommendation? What happened between when that recommendation was made and when the fall occurred? And how can we better approach this next time? Mm -hmm. How much time were you devoting to this role, was it an hour a week or half a day a week? What was the overall time commitment? It probably came out to about an hour a week, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, There was the monthly meeting that occurred with the nursing fall and mobility champions as well. And so that happened once a month, it was an hour. And then on the other times, you know, there was a year where we dedicated every Wednesday for an hour to shadow and audit per se our fellow therapists and their best practices and are they doing what the recommendations are you know are the whiteboards updated are they are they communicating to the nurses is the safety plan put in place you know do they are they communicating all of that and so 
we spent a good portion of our first year in the role understanding what current state was for therapy, Mm because that's where we can make the biggest impact, right? We can Mm -hmm. educate our therapy staff on what we could do better. And then the following year was spent translating that to the nursing side and what can we help better on the nursing side to help the initiative. And then it slowly transpired into less than an hour a week, I would say probably because, you know, things were set into place and NATWA was more so monitoring and understanding and constantly evaluating the processes to see what we can improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the that's so interesting to me and the economics of these positions are so interesting because the article just kind of highlighted how expensive falls are and how the hospitals bear that cost a lot of the time. So even though your time is really valuable and it's expensive, like if your time can prevent one of those falls, it's really easy to see how that is worthwhile. But as article shows us, it's kind of, it's harder than one may think to actually prevent falls and do that in a way that we are confident would be effective. So I guess turning to this article, I was curious your initial impressions of it. I loved that they just started with the statistics off the bat. Yes, um, yeah, me too. They're just so eye-opening, right? I think we think about like, of course we don't want anybody to fall in the hospital, but it happens. And Mm -hmm. I think that the understanding of how frequently it happens and (laughs) the impact of it is not always well understood if you're not working in the hospital Mm -hmm. or even directly within patient care areas. And so I love that they started with the statistics right off the bat because it just tells you like point blank, this is a problem. This is how frequently it happens. And this is the cost of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're like, got my attention. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I, I loved that. Then I did appreciate what they covered as far as common interventions and best practice currently, Mm -hmm. because it is very consistent with what I have seen across the various hospitals Mm -hmm. I've worked with. You know, it's a lot of the same interventions and processes that are in place to tackle fall prevention across hospitals. And so I found that that was nice to see that it was Mm -hmm. fairly consistent. And then one part that I did miss in the article was that they didn't address staff education or even caregiver education at all. And I I do feel like that plays a big role. And so Mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to see what best practice or current practice is across hospitals related specifically to staff and caregiver education on top of the patient education. Yeah. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. And I'm going to, on this podcast episode, I'm going to link a supplementary article that's come out this year that does really focus on that area because that definitely seemed like the big gap in this current review. But other than that, everything did feel very familiar, like, oh, I've done all those things. Were you surprised by the lack of evidence behind some of the things, especially in this more recent article, like alluded to, maybe chair alarms cause more falls than they help. Like, was that part surprising to you? Or I don't know, how'd that all hit you? I'd be lying if I said I was completely surprised. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I, with the number of years I've seen and worked in this specific area, you know, we know that people are going to get up when they want to. 
That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. Yep. You need something, you're going to get up. We're human, we're independent souls, and we're just, we want to do what we want to do when yeah. we want to do it. <laughs> yep. And so, you know, I think I was not surprised at the lack of research in supporting some of these interventions. Mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. you know, a lot of these interventions are things that we can control and we can say we're doing in order to try yeah, and help. Yep. Check. Yeah. Make check off the boxes, right? But how much do they actually help, and how much do they actually work? I'm not sure because we still have a false problem in this country, mm-hmm. right? In the in yeah. hospitals. And yes, over the years it has definitely slowly declined. But what is that due to? We can't really put a finger yeah, on who it knows? because there's yeah. so many variables that relate to a fall, and so it's very difficult to truly understand. This is it. This is the answer. This is going to fix mm-hmm. the fall. Yeah. The falls issue. So no, I wasn't super surprised, yeah. <laughs> but I am surprised that it can be the alternative of where it can cause more falls mm-hmm. because again, this is a checkbox we're checking off and should that be something that Shouldn't that be healthy? We shouldn't yeah. be checking off. Right? Yeah. So oh, that might be an area. See that problem of like you stand up, the alarm goes off, you're startled, you're like how do I fix the alarm? And then, yeah, I can see how that could cause more falls than it helps. And something I was just thinking about your team, too, where you, you were that fall and mobility specialist, like something the article to me didn't talk about enough is like that tension with like you are trying to encourage early mobility lots of the times, too. So the answer to preventing falls can't just be like stay in bed, stay in your chair, because there's so many benefits to that early mobility. And I like that about your role that it seemed like they were trying to balance both of those things. Like, how do we help people get up, but also keep them safe from falling? And that's just a hard tension to balance, for sure. Yeah, that change in culture was actually truly what initiated the entire fall and mobility program. And it was because we were having a lot of that feedback of, oh, they said I can't get up until you guys come in here. And or, oh, we're waiting for therapy to get them up first. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we went through education with that, too, of, you know, we're actually doing them a disservice by making them stay in bed, whether it's for you know, 10 hours or two days, you're actually contributing to their debility from Mm -hmm. the hospital stay. And so we really do need to kind of try and continue whatever their baseline mobility is as soon as they're in the hospital and try to keep it as routine and consistent as possible to minimize the impact of being hospitalized. Because being hospitalized in general, even for someone like me or you, is debilitating. You know, we can go one or two days without our routine and we could get weaker or just not feel well and feel worse than we did when we went in. And in my opinion, I think it's truly just related to the lack of routine. Like you're not doing what you do every day. And we're fortunate the younger we are, we can bounce back quickly. But the older you are, it's much harder to bounce back quickly. And then that leads to more debility and, you know, more injuries potentially and decreased independence and the whole, mm-hmm. the whole nine yards, Yeah, uh, you know, and so really emphasizing the why behind early mobility really helps kind of create that culture shift of, okay, no, we do need to get them up. We can't wait for therapy, but how do we do this safely? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking as I was reading this article was just thinking about walking in as the therapist and being like, I want to understand as quickly as possible what their routine looked like before, what they did to feel safe as they were getting around. Like, yeah, what did their routine look like before? But also let them know that you're in a different place now and you're at a much higher fall risk. Everyone is. And that's not specific to you as a patient. Like, yeah, you're just in a higher fall risk state. I wanted to ask about like that screening and assessment part of fall prevention where lots of hospitals do it. It was interesting when they talked about it in the research, like actually giving someone a rating wasn't rated as didn't have that strong of evidence behind it, but it's still a common practice. And I wanted to ask about that for your setting and what that screening assessment part looked like. Yeah. So from an occupational therapy standpoint, you know, a lot of our fall screening is subjective. You know, have you had a fall in the last six months? Mm. And then understanding the mechanics behind it. Okay. Can you tell me about what happened during that fall? Like, did you trip on something? Did you get dizzy? Did you lose your balance? Like, do you remember what happened? You know, and oftentimes you have a general idea from the from the chart before going in to see them knowing, especially if they came in with a fall, you have some sort of information related to whether Mm -hmm. it was a mechanical fall or if they thought it was a vasovagal episode or if they just don't know what happened. And so you have a little bit of information, but then you really, we really do a subjective history and trying to really understand, okay, what happened, right? From there, you know, every now and then, depending on if they're true reason for admission is frequent falls and there's really nothing else highlighting or explaining the nature of their falls. And it could purely be related to either strength or balance or environment. Then we'll do some screens or formal screening like the five-time stand or the DGI to truly under, like get a baseline measure before intervening. Oftentimes that's, I feel like that's left to the next level of care to kind of do, you know, do formal screening and intervention. But a lot of times our elderly patients are in the hospital for a while. And so we might as well start tackling that while they're there. Occasionally we'll debrief with like the nurses too on like, are you having trouble with toileting needs? Is there something that you're worried about as far as them falling specifically related to their toileting needs. So like, are they on a water pill, right? Are they constipated? Are they having diarrhea? Because all of those are going to lead to urgency, which then could become a hazard. Do we Mm -hmm. need to get them a commode instead of the toilet, even though they're capable of walking to the bathroom, but they may simply try to rush and trip or fall over or lose their balance because they're rushing due to the urgency, you know, so it sometimes it seems simple, but it's really just evaluating, taking like a step back and looking at the big picture. It's what can all contribute to a potential fall here mm-hmm. in this current state. The other big piece I would say is cognition. You know, a good chunk is related to toileting, but a good chunk of those falls are also related to cognition. Oftentimes it's related to poor safety awareness or poor insight into their deficits or just simply confusion and unawareness. On the neurofloors, a lot of times impulsivity is also a factor. And so we will screen on eval and on follow-up sessions for any potential cognitive concerns related to their understanding of safety and what their safe mobility and toileting plan is and the nature of why that mobility plan is in place. And so 
a lot of times I feel that patient education is truly dependent on them understanding the why. And so do they understand that if they get up without help, they're connected to three different things. And if one of them gets pulled out or they trip and fall and injure themselves, that that means that they're going to be in the hospital much longer than they want to be, Mm -hmm. right? Or they're going to injure themselves more than they probably want to be, or they can lead to an infection that could keep them in the hospital longer. And so things like that, you know, it's not just you have to do it because I told you to. It's because we don't want you to be here any longer than you're already here or that you have to be here. And we want you to be able to go home instead of rehab because if you fall and you injure yourself, you know, right now you're able to get up and move around okay. But then if something happens, you might have to go to rehab instead of being able Mm -hmm. to go home. And we, we don't want that for you. So really just explaining the why I think after those initial screens and assessments helps kind of put the whole picture together. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're asking the patient about their fall history, not only are you gathering information for yourself, you're also helping them self-reflect and be like, oh, I have fallen. And that just like starts a conversation about that. And I don't know, no one wants to raise their hand and be like, I'm a fall risk. Like no one wants to admit that what happened a month ago could happen again here in the hospital. But that like screening question can get them on the same. Yeah, you can have that conversation about how important that is. Right. And on the contrary, you know, if you know that they've had multiple falls and you go in (laughs) and ask them and they're like, no, I haven't fallen. We're working with a whole different profile here, right? (laughs) So that also helps guide interventions then. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like hearing just that conversation that happens. And that does seem to be the key is being on the same page. There's no like magic bullet of like this special screen or checklist is the answer. It's really getting on the same page with everyone that preventing falls is important and explaining that why, like you said. Something that stood out to me was just like the footwear recommendation, which I linked to like Again, understanding what were they doing before? I like kind of laugh at how much time I've spent in a hospital, like running to find gripper socks for the patient, which now after reading this, I was like, that probably wasn't the best use of my time. I should have been talking to that patient and seeing what they had and being more focused on them. Yeah. How did that part of the article hit you? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, common practice is I always have a pair of gripper socks in my yeah, pocket. Yeah, me too. Because somehow yeah. they like magically disappear from the rooms. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's often, you know, the plan of care. It's like, all right, we're going to get these gripper socks on and get you moving because that's the safe footwear protocol per se in the hospital. And when I first started thinking that maybe this wasn't the best option was when I had a patient tell me that they would be safer in their own sneakers because they felt that the hospital socks were too slippery. And in my mind, I'm like, how are they slippery? They have grips on them, you know, but the grips are on the complete bottom of the sole, right? And so if they're standing up on their heels, there's no grippers on the heels. Mm. And so I can see then where like if they've got a posterior lean or if they have a tendency to stand on their heels or even their forefoot, they're not going to have grippers on those areas. 
And so I can Mm -hmm. see where that can become then slippery compared to someone who stands up on their entire foot. And that was my first like exposure to questioning the use of gripper socks for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so from there, I started, you know, often asking patients like, hey, do you do you have your shoes here with you? Do you have your you know, what did you wear to the hospital? A lot of times they didn't have shoes on when they came in because they either came in through ambulance or, you know, whatever the case may be. Every now and then they came in with their house slippers and I'm like, sorry, we're not wearing them. Yeah, no. <laughs> but for the most part, I mean, I'm in Chicago and so like eight months out of the year, it's pretty cold. And so people have shoes on <laughs> versus like open toed sandals or any of anything like that. And so I've gotten definitely into more of the habit of asking patients instead of just throwing a pair of socks at them and saying, Hey, do you have your shoes here with you? It might be easier for you to get around. Because even with that, you can also see their lower body dressing, right? Can they get their mm-hmm. shoes on? Yeah. Their own shoes and not the hospital socks that are hard to get on and kind of be able to watch them go through their own routine of getting dressed versus the hospital stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can totally just see that. Like even I have... Like I wear my footwear for a reason because I have low arches. So I wear these certain kinds of shoes and most of our patients wear what they wear for a reason. And they do different things throughout the day to make them feel safe for falling. I was even thinking for myself, like I have super low blood pressure. And when I wake up, sometimes I feel dizzy. So I have a bench by my bed. And if I was a a hospital, I'd be like, I want to have a chair where I can sit if I start to feel dizzy. And that wouldn't be caught on a screen. So it really is that conversation and what makes you feel safe. I wanted to ask you too about the technology part of it. I liked how they they were kind of, in my reading, were kind of like, yeah, maybe these alarms that everyone uses all the time, there's not the strongest evidence behind them, but that doesn't mean we should discount technology as something that could potentially help us in the future or maybe it's happening now, but just doesn't have that widespread dissemination. Are there technologies that are on your radar or that hypothetically you were like, oh, I wish this would exist or something that'd be interesting to try? Yeah. So something that happened at our hospital during the pandemic was remote video monitoring. So it's just live Mm, feeds. There's no recording. But because it was so difficult to get into rooms quickly because you had to put on all your PPE, it became evident very quickly that that was actually a really helpful thing to Mm -hmm. have because, you know, we would have plenty of people at the nursing station all the time and you can see the live monitoring and, you know, you can hear if you hear an alarm going off, someone's looking at the camera to see what's going on. And sometimes maybe they're just adjusting in bed and the bed alarm went off, right? Yeah. At other times you can see them trying to physically get out of bed and you're like, oh, shoot, I need to make a dash for it, right? Yeah. And so we've actually maintained that technology now, too, and to have found it helpful. Something that we came across during our fall work, and we meaning the PT counterpart and I, was an article that had a dedicated role, and that was either usually a tech, like a patient care technician, who their sole role was to watch the cameras. And then Mm. they could speak into the cameras and tell people to sit down or to wait for help or, hey, someone's coming. coming. And that was their job. 
And so you have one person dedicated to looking at 30 cameras, you know, however many beds are on that unit. And what that article found was it was cost effective because they needed less sitters because oftentimes, you know, Mm -hmm. there's usually more than one sitter on a floor, depending on the floor. And so it decreased the need for sitters that were there due to fall risk. It increased like the ability to understand what was actually happening without having to make a run for it every single Mm -hmm. time. It was easier to know hey, like, looks like they want to go to the bathroom. Can someone help them really quickly? So we found that was an article that really suggested the need or benefit of these remote video monitoring systems. Mm -hmm. Now, something I've come across is that there's definitely home-based systems for this stuff. Like you can install cameras in your home to watch on your phone, right? Like the Nest cameras and Googles and all that fun stuff. I've heard frequently from patients and their family members that they've installed these cameras at home and it's easy for them to speak into them and remind them what's going on or saying, hold on, mom, I'll be right there, you know? And so I feel like that was a good translation between like home and hospital. I can see the consistency there. The other things we've often used at home nowadays is like wearable technology, right? Mm -hmm. We have like the fall detection apps and services on various wearable technology. That's something that I wonder if that could be translated into like inpatient settings, because I feel that that would maybe have even more of a likelihood of knowing like, okay, someone's heart rate's going up, their blood pressure's dropping, and they're about to get up. Should we be worried because could they pass out, right? What you just mentioned, where you first get up and you feel dizzy sometimes because of that low blood pressure. I mean, that happens Mm -hmm. to a lot of people in the hospital, especially. And as many times as we try to monitor them, if they're trying to get up, this might even be, you know, a patient who's completely independent otherwise, and they're fine getting up and going, you know, going around their room by themselves, and no one's Mm -hmm. worried about them. But all of a sudden, their blood pressure is dropping and their heart rate's going up and nobody's in there to monitor that. But it beeps at the nursing station or at the nurse's phone and says, hey, they're up and about, their vitals are off, maybe someone should go in there. Yeah, that's totally what I need. (laughs) I need that every morning. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that could prevent some of those like unwitnessed vagal related Mm -hmm. falls, right? So that's something that I I wonder if it could translate more into the inpatient setting. And then lastly, I wanted to touch on something I came across during my, you know, just general research of like fall prevention and what different facilities are doing. There is a AI company working on remote monitoring, but the remote monitoring is not even in-house. It's like at the company headquarters and they have... We talked about being cost-effective. Yeah. And so this company is called Safely You, if you ever want Mm. to look into it. But they're currently only in nursing facilities and assisted living facilities. And I wonder if eventually maybe they might plan to go into hospital settings. I'm not sure. But what they do is they actually hire occupational therapists and physical therapists internally to their company. And this is an AI like tech company. And so they hire therapists to monitor these videos. And if there is a fall that happens that is unwitnessed, then Mm. the OT and the PT or the PT who is monitoring the fall 
does a full analysis on what happened and they provide interventions based on that to back to the facility. And so it's completely remote. Like it's not even in-house anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't know how much the, they cost, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. from like an external source, but that was really interesting to me that this doesn't even need to be in-house anymore and it can yeah. be outsourced. And how do, what does that look like? That feels like you and I should have invented that. it's a good idea (laughs) and that just makes me think about the not only you want to prevent falls but as I've been reading about this too I'm like there are certain numbers of falls that are preventable that's almost like a false like some just happen so fast there are going to be some falls like and this other technology has the benefit of like your response time can be so fast then like we saw the fall if you're in the hospital, someone's there right away. And the worst is in the home when someone falls and is down for so long. So these technologies hopefully help prevent it. But then if it does happen, helps with that response time to get to someone right away. Right. And that's where we want to try and decrease the fall risk, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's the preventable things. Yes. The non-preventable yeah. things, you know, again, maybe this technology can help with some of that. Maybe it can't, but yeah. it's more of all the preventable reasons that there are for why falls happen, like, can we can we minimize that? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I shouldn't say falls aren't, pre- maybe everything is preventable, but there's so many reasons that falls are still happening. So we also have a need to have a plan for that too. So right. you alluded to this already, but that both patient, I guess I would say three things, the patient, caregiver, and staff education, all three of those parties getting on the same page about it. That definitely, that was my takeaway from this research and the other research we looked at, like that is the most powerful mechanism is that education piece. Yeah. What are your insights there? What have you learned about that education piece? I completely agree. Like patient education is hundred percent important, of course, right? Like Mm -hmm. going back to what I was saying earlier about People need to understand the why behind doing what they're being asked to do or not to do. And so I think explaining the why is imperative to patient education. Staff education is imperative to understanding why those protocols or safety recommendations exist, right? It's not just about the paperwork. It's about a person who could potentially get injured or you can get injured if you're helping them up and they fall on you or you know, it's about someone being stuck in the hospital longer than they need to be. And so there's all these other reasons on why staff needs to be educated on the why and Mm -hmm. why we're doing what we're doing, why we're recommending what we're recommending. And that it's not just a blanket protocol for every single patient. You have very patient specific safety protocols in place for a reason or safety recommendations Mm -hmm. in place for a reason. And so I think the staff and patient education go hand in hand, and it really just comes down to understanding the why. Mm -hmm. Caregiver education is something that I have been working really hard to kind of find evidence on as far as like why that could be so effective. I find often in the hospital that if a patient wants to go to the bathroom and they've called for the nurse and it's taking a little while and there's a family member in the room, Mm -hmm. they'll often try and help them up to the bathroom, right? Mm -hmm. Sounds like a great idea in theory, Mm -hmm. but you know, what could potentially go wrong? 
with that situation, <laughs> right? And now we we're toying with the idea of if the patient falls, we now have two injured patients, mm-hmm. right? You will now have an injured patient and an injured family member or caregiver. And now that leads to another hospitalization. So now we're at a preventable hospitalization. Yeah, yes. And so that, it becomes a domino effect from there. It's one after another, one thing leads to another, and it just kind of goes downhill from that. And so for caregivers, I think obviously the why is important for them too, but it's truly understanding the impact of what could happen if something were to happen while they were helping their loved one up and moving Mm -hmm. around, especially if they need a lot of help. I'm not talking about, you know, the patients who are fairly independent and they just need someone there with them in case they start feeling lightheaded or something and need to grab a seat, right? Those will be like, okay, yes, please walk four times a day with your family member just Mm -hmm. so you're up and out of the room and moving, right? But it's the ones who we are very specifically saying they need a staff member with them at all times when they're getting up. The family member and the caregiver don't qualify as that staff member Mm -hmm. simply because of the precautions that need to be taken or if there's lines involved or if the patient's really unsteady and we've recommended safe patient handling equipment, the family member's not going to be able to safely get that patient up, right? And so this is where I really think caregiver education needs to be far more embedded into the Mm day-to-day. I think patient education, everyone's got down. Everybody does it now. Staff education is slowly in the works and it's becoming way more common now with these different programs and initiatives and just general communication between the different providers. And I think caregiver education is where, one, it's hard because there's not always a caregiver at bedside or a family member at bedside. Mm-hmm. But two, because we often are so busy addressing the patient that we don't address the other person in the room. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it's becoming a lot more important to start doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is just a trend across feels like all of the research that we look at, how important and impactful it is engaging that caregiver. And that just felt like the biggest miss of all of this research that we looked at. And I guess why we need OTs on these research teams is engaging that caregiver is so important for the safety reasons that you mentioned. And because they're a whole nother source of information, either like backing up what the patient said or adding some corrective things, or when someone isn't cognitively intact, you're relying on that caregiver. And that's just a different kind of communication than communicating directly with the patient. So I feel like it needs its own focus and yeah. Approach. Yeah, and I think the other bigger benefit, I think, of involving the caregiver is that then there's carryover to the home. And yeah. maybe that yep. decreases the risk of them falling at home again. Mm-hmm. You know, we can educate the patient as much as we can, but if they're living with someone who can reinforce some of that or actually help them with that once they get home, I think that can make a day and night difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is... I love this topic. I love how complex it is, but I love how there's such concrete things that we can be doing to make a difference and how valuable that OT voice is in there. As we're getting close to the end of our time, are there any resources that you found helpful to learn about fall prevention over the years? 
I myself have the fall prevention certification and I felt that that taught me a lot of more specifics and just like a screening assessment and intervention than we would necessarily get in school. I will say a lot of fall prevention courses are by physical therapists and Mm -hmm. often the audience is physical therapy, but I do feel that in order to improve our OT presence and knowledge within fall prevention that we need to be attending these courses and reading about them or reading various articles that might we might not be the targeted audience, but we will learn Mm -hmm. something from that and then can use our OT lens to apply it to practice and kind of hopefully over time bridge that gap that I currently see existing in OT and fall prevention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is an awesome area because there are so many resources and it's interdisciplinary like all parts of your hospital team would benefit from reading this article and the supplementary articles and the information's coming out so fast. So it is just this continued learning process for sure. Because just like we said at the beginning, the number of falls is a surprising number and the money that it costs. So there's lots of people invested in addressing this and there's a lot of resources for you. This has been so fun and helpful to talk through. I can't believe it. We're at our rapid fire time if you're up for it. Sure. Finish this sentence for me. Occupational therapy is. Ooh. (laughs) I like to say that it's undefinable. Mm, I feel like we have so many variables and variety in what we do and can do and that there's truly no one definition that we can apply to it. Mm -hmm. And when we're keeping up with best practice, that means we're changing all the time because... Yeah, best practice is continually changing. So yeah, I like that answer. That's awesome. What's one moment you've had as an OT that you'll never forget? I had this one patient while I had fieldwork students with me and I cover general medicine. And so oftentimes we have patients there due to just various like thrombocytopenia, abnormal lab values, and just trying to figure out what's going on. We had this one patient who came in with a 3.4 hemoglobin, Mm. and typically we don't even enter that room under six, right? Like we want to know, like, are they going to bleed out? Like what's happening? You know, we want to figure out what's going on. We got therapy consults and, you know, we were like, we're not going in that room. Like that's, you know, 3.4 is very low. And this patient followed a religion that she was not comfortable getting blood transfusion. And so they were declining blood and platelet transfusions to help improve the hemoglobin. And so the therapy team was kind of at a loss because they're like, or sorry, not the therapy team. The medical team was at a loss because it's like, we're not providing medical care, but they're not safe enough to go home. And Mm -hmm. they're also potentially not safe enough to work with the therapy team. (laughs) in-house. And so, of course, I had a student with me. So we're like, oh, no, what are we doing? (laughs) But I remember we we had a full team meeting. I mean, it was like the medical director of the floor, the attending, the nurses, OT, PT. And we were just like, we need a game plan. And if we're Mm -hmm. going in there, I need the medical providers in the room because like, we don't know what could happen. I had never worked with a patient with that low of a hemoglobin before. And so, you know, we went in and she did okay medically. I mean, like Mm -hmm. hemodynamically stable, 
because of the low hemoglobin, it was causing like micro hemorrhages. And so she was starting to lose her vision and her organs were starting to shut down and, you know, everything that leads, it's a domino effect, you know? And so mm-hmm. we were really trying to make this patient understand that, you know, we need to plan for a safe discharge plan if she is going home in such a fragile status. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, I live alone. I'm very independent. I'm not getting a wheelchair. Like I'm not using a walker. I'm not doing any of this. Very resistant to any safety recommendations we were making. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we were like, okay, like, is there someone who can help you if you don't want to use anything? And her sister, I believe, had come in one day and we were like trying to reason with the sister and we're like, you know, this is a very fragile situation. We want to make sure because if she falls and if she hurts herself, she could potentially die because Mm -hmm. of the very limited amount of blood in her system. And it was almost like they just they were unwilling to just believe that. And they were so strong in their belief that their religious affiliation would take care of them and that they would be just fine once they got home was so strong and that it was, you know, it nothing we could say or do was going to get through to them. Mm-mm. That patient walked out of the hospital and went home and was her, her vision came back. She was walking around like everything bounced back. I mean, it took, I think it was there over <laughs> 60 days or something, but you know, with no intervention, her hemoglobin started gradually going up oh. and like, it was like a complete, we were, we, we were like, this is a medical miracle. I mean, this, you know, we had no idea, even the team, like the doctors and everyone, we were like, is this patient going to make it out of here? Like, are we going to, you know, are we just going to be here monitoring? Like, what are we going to do? And it was such, like, I'm getting chills. Just yeah, you know, like, we were just like, what Whoa. in the world? Like, and, you know, it really taught me the power of a patient's will and mm-hmm. their belief system. And when they truly believe in something and have that intention or just that super strong determination that they're going to be just fine and they're going to make it home and they're, they don't need us and they're, they don't need our safety recommendations <laughs> and they're going to walk out of there. And it was one of those moments where I was like, you know, I, we need to trust our patients more sometimes mm-hmm. or yeah. give them that benefit of the doubt and say, okay, I, I hear you. I believe your belief and I want to help you get there. So how can we work together to get you there instead mm-hmm. of trying to fight the patient every step along the way or argue with their belief or argue with their determination? How can we work with them to get them to that? Yeah. Even if science is not agreeing with us, yeah. right? Like <laughs> we're like, you know, it was one of those moments that we were just like, this can't happen. Yeah. Unreal. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't know what it was. Something kicked in, or maybe it was truly her strong belief. And mm. that patient walked out of there. And we were just, it was amazing. Oh. That's amazing. <laughs> I love acute care and just the yeah the miracles that happen there sometimes and I'm connecting it back to this research and being like I love that the strongest intervention they saw was that patient communication like that is the just beauty and amazingness of acute care and yeah that's going to that opens up the unexpected and that's awesome sometimes it's great to be surprised 
Oh, Pusha, we've talked about so many things today, so many helpful things. I have, yeah, just a lot to think about from it. But I was curious to hear from you, what's the final takeaway you want to leave people with? Thank you, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure talking about all of this. I would say the biggest takeaway I would say coming from this conversation is that we as occupational therapists are so uniquely positioned and play such a significant role in fall prevention everywhere, whether it's Mm -hmm. their own home to the community, to the hospital, to a nursing facility, you know, it is just so imperative that we address it from the holistic perspective and lens that we have every step of the way to kind of really decrease the amount of an impact of falls in our community. Fuji, this has been so helpful. Thank you so much for your time today and just for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much, Sarah, for this opportunity. Oh, wow, you all, this was such a fun topic to discuss. The research really broke down my preconceptions about fall prevention. It made me rethink the things that I had done in the past and really cast this new vision of how we should be spending our our time, which is really focused on that patient caregiver staff education, which I feel like is music to our ears because that is something that many of us are so skilled at. And so it's awesome to be nudged by the evidence to lean into that calling. And I'm just so thankful to Pooja for the nuance and thoughtfulness that she brought to this discussion. I really hope that after this podcast that you share your thoughts and questions with us. The best place to do that is in the OT Potential Club where we'll have a forum both for the research and for this podcast. And that is also where you will head to take a test for your time today and earn a certificate. But as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice and stay evidence-based. Take care and we'll talk to you next time.